0: This is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from London. With me is Peter Adamson, professor of philosophy at the Ludwig Maximilians Universität in Munich and King's College, London. And he's here to talk to us about the philosophy of Al-Kindi. Peter Adamson, welcome.
1: Thanks. I'm really pleased to be on because I'm a big fan of the show.
0: I think a lot of our listeners probably haven't heard of Al-Kindi before. So maybe we can just begin by saying something about the historical context. You know, who was Al-Kindi? When and where did he live and so forth?
1: Right. Well, he lived in the ninth century, which is the third century of the Islamic calendar, in Iraq, which is where he was from. He would have spent some of his time in Baghdad, but not necessarily his whole career in Baghdad. Baghdad was a city that had been founded in recent memory, by the second caliphate of the Islamic tradition. So first you have the Umayyad caliphate, then you have the Abbasids who sweep in from Central Asia and kick the Umayyads out. And one of the things that's interesting about the Abbasids, and probably the most interesting thing about them if you're interested in philosophy, is that they plowed a lot of money and resources into getting works of Greek science and philosophy translated into Arabic and al was intimately involved in that process. He was the head of what's sometimes called a translation circle, which would have consisted mostly of Christians who were able to read Greek. They were often from a Syrian background. And al was coordinating their efforts, so he would have been, for example, choosing which texts that would be translated. He would have been correcting the Arabic improving the style of the translations that were produced and maybe most importantly he was a go-between between these translators and the rich patrons who were actually funding the activity so he was a very central figure in the transmission of greek philosophy and science into the arabic speaking world he wasn't the only person like this so there's another translation circle led by someone named Hunain ibn Ishaq who was an expert in medicine really more than philosophy but the special thing about Kindy is that he not only was intimately involved in this translation process, but he was also himself a philosopher. So having these texts produced for him, as it were, hot off the presses, he then turned around and wrote all of these treatises or actually epistles of his own where he tried to explain the philosophical relevance of this Greek material for a contemporary audience.
0: Okay, so Al-Kindi was at the forefront of this translation movement in the Islamic world. So he was simultaneously sort of importing texts from the ancient Greek world and coming up with various philosophical responses to them. Which ancient Greek philosophical texts did Al-Kindi actually have access to?
1: Right, well, he actually would have been able to read a a fairly wide range of texts, not quite as wide as the next major philosopher in the Islamic world, who's a bit more famous, who's named Al-Farabi. So by the time of Al-Farabi, who's a couple of generations later, he would have been able, for example, to read pretty much all the Aristotle that we have. And that's not true of al-Kindi. But al-Kindi would have known a number of works by Aristotle, including the metaphysics, at least parts of the physics, the work on the soul, and quite a range of logical works. In fact, because the late ancient educational curriculum that the Arabic tradition grew out of was very logic centered because you would sort of start students out on logic pretty much the first things to be translated were works on logic and logic in a broad sense so right not just the prior analytics which is where you get the theory of syllogistic but also things like the posterior analytics which is aristotle's work on epistemology although that actually comes a little bit later and maybe wasn't read by kindy the categories porphyry's work introducing aristotle's logic and so on So he would have had a pretty comprehensive knowledge of Aristotle and he actually wrote a work called on the quantity of Aristotle's books in which he goes through Aristotle's entire corpus and tells you all the books that Aristotle wrote and what they're about sometimes you can actually tell that he hasn't read the book in question but he tells you what it's about anyway (laughs) presumably drawing on some kind of Greek summary of the contents of the work so he knows Aristotle very well Perhaps surprisingly to us, he doesn't know Plato very well at all. And in fact, that's not something that would be fixed as the tradition goes along. Plato was known in Arabic really only in the form of summary paraphrases. And probably what we're dealing with there is Arabic translations of Greek summaries of Plato's dialogues. So we do not have any evidence that there was a single work by Plato known fully in dialogue form. And in fact, there's only been, I think one or two passages quoted in dialogue form from Plato and those so that would be only like a little outtake from say the Republic But even that's quite rare. Mostly what we're dealing with there is kind of All right. Well, there's this work the Phaedo and here's what Plato says in it He proves the immortality of the soul and it just summarizes the arguments So much more Aristotle than Plato. The other thing that's perhaps notable is Okindy's knowledge of Neoplatonic works So in particular, the founder of Neoplatonism, whose name was Plotinus, who lived in the 3rd century AD, his works were translated in Okindia's circle, and through some process that we don't fully understand, became mistaken for a work by Aristotle, so this was called The Theology of Aristotle, I personally think it's very unlikely that O'Kindy himself thought that this was by Aristotle, so I think that's a later confusion that creeps in because of the manuscript transmission or something. It's a kind of complicated story, but the main point is that O'Kindy certainly has access to the thought of Plotinus. Maybe not everything Plotinus wrote, but a pretty good whack of it. And the other thing that was produced in O'Kindy's circle that's relevant here is a version of a work by Proclus. Proclus is a later Neoplatonist from late antiquity who sort of fused pagan religious belief with Neoplatonic metaphysics, and maybe his most easy-to-read-and-use work is called The Elements of Theology, in which Proclus reduces his system to an axiomatic demonstration based on Euclid's elements. So in other words, he starts with these fundamental axioms and then he just builds up these arguments So, it's kind of like a user's guide to Neoplatonism and for that reason, probably, it was translated into Arabic. Again, the version that we get in Arabic is different from the one we have in Greek, and so it's rearranged and it's selective, just like the Arabic version of Plotinus. Some of the content is changed just as with the Arabic version of Plotinus. An interesting footnote here is that the Arabic version of Proclus's Elements later on was translated into Latin and was called the Book of Causes, or Libre de Causes. And although it wasn't that influential in Arabic, in this new Latin guise, it became one of the most influential books to impact on scholastic Latin medieval philosophy. Thomas Aquinas wrote a commentary on it. And in fact, Thomas Aquinas was the one who announced that it wasn't really by Aristotle, as again, it was mistaken for being, but was rather a work by Proclus.
0: I guess we can say that Al-Kindi's take on ancient philosophy was maybe somewhat Aristotle-centric. Is this the reason that Aristotle came to take on the importance that he did in, for example, Christian medieval philosophy and a little bit after this era?
1: Not exactly. So I think to really understand why Aristotle is so important, you need to go back to late antiquity. So if you think about Antique philosophy, right? So maybe some people listen to this when they think of ancient philosophy, they basically think of Plato and Aristotle, maybe the pre Socratics before them, like Parmenides and Heraclitus. But it's important to realize that for Akindi, Plato and Aristotle were already more than a thousand years ago, right? So it's extremely ancient from his point of view, just as from our point of view. And what had happened in the meantime was, first of all, Hellenistic philosophy, which is the Stoics, Skeptics, and Epicureans they don't have that much impact on the Arabic tradition because the works that they wrote were mostly lost and not translated into Arabic. The way that we know about Hellenistic philosophy is through authors like Cicero and Diogenes Laertius, whose works were not translated into Arabic. I mean, Cicero, of course, is in Latin, and there's no Latin Arabic translation movement. There's only a Greek Arabic translation movement. So they don't really know about Hellenistic philosophy anyway. I mean, they know bits. What they really know very well is the late antique tradition, which makes sense, right? Because it's the last thing to happen before we get to Arabic. And in fact, you might say that there's a real continuity that goes from late ancient philosophy, which is really the time where Neoplatonism is dominant, right up into the Islamic philosophical tradition by way of another Semitic language, which is Syriac. So what you have to imagine here is that even as late ancient philosophy is kind of grinding to a halt, already in Syria, people are starting to translate works of philosophy, again especially logic, into Syriac, and write little commentaries or explanations of what's going on. And then that is transmitted to Arabic, and as I said, the translators were often from Syria. So there's a real kind of continuity, it's not like everything just collapses and then the Muslims come back in and pick up the pieces. It's more like an ongoing process that started in late antiquity. And the reason why this is all relevant to your question about Aristotle is that in late antiquity, the approach to philosophy was very Aristotle-centric. That might seem strange, right? Because late ancient philosophers are neo-Platonists, so why aren't they more interested in Plato than Aristotle? And the answer is that they are, but they think that Plato is really advanced, So for them, Plato is like what you would study in grad school, whereas Aristotle is what you'd study as an undergraduate. And since a lot of the texts that they were producing were for use in teaching contexts, like they would write commentaries, and the commentaries would often just be a report of what some master said in the lectures on Aristotle, let's say. What that means is that in late antiquity, the most texts that are produced are about Aristotle's logic, because you start with that. And then other bits of Aristotle get treated pretty comprehensively, but actually Proclus is the o- almost the only author for whom we have significant commentaries on Plato. So actually, I think when people like O'Kindy and his colleagues looked at the Greek philosophical tradition, they saw two things. First, they saw that Aristotle was the crucial starting point. And so when O'Kindy writes on the quantity of Aristotle's books, essentially what he's telling you is, Here's the educational curriculum you have to master if you want to study philosophy. And the other thing is that when they look at the text, they just see all these Aristotle works, commentaries on Aristotle, and, of course, the original texts. So for Okindi, the centrality of Aristotle is not a new thing, but just something that's kind of passed on to him from the late ancient tradition. Something that, by the way, is a little bit more novel in Okindi is that he's also very influenced by a very wide range of Greek scientific works, so especially in mathematics. He's really interested in people like Euclid and Ptolemy. And something that he tries to do pretty explicitly is bring the mathematical methodologies that he finds in these works to Neoplatonism. Now, that's something that we have seen already in late antiquity to some extent. So, for example, Proclus's Elements of Theology is applying Euclidean method to Platonist metaphysics, but what's interesting about al is in part that he has such a mathematicized way of doing philosophy, so his whole kind of conception of how you do philosophical demonstration is clearly grounded more in mathematical texts than in Aristotle's works on demonstration, which as I say he may not have been able to read yet.
0: One of Alkindi's ideas was that God, uh, which maybe means something a bit different from the perhaps more anthropomorphic conception we might have of God, was the fundamental principle that explained everything in the world or everything in the universe. Why did he think that was the case, and in what sense was God the fundamental explanatory principle? Well, I think O'Kindy's
1: project as a whole should probably be seen above all as an attempt to show that Greek philosophical ideas are going to be interesting and important for Muslims. So obviously the critical thing he needs to do if he wants to show that, is prove that the God of the philosophers is the God of the Quran, as it were. There's some other things he needs to do too, right? He needs to show that you can, for example, demonstrate the immortality of the soul. He needs to show that Greek ethics line up with Islamic ethics pretty well and so on. But this is really the issue that's most important for him to deal with. And he deals with it in his most important surviving work, which is called On First Philosophy, which is just a way of referring to metaphysics. So as you probably know, Aristotle's metaphysics is about metaphysics, right? But Aristotle never uses the word metaphysics in that work and he always calls what he's doing first philosophy. So Kendi's signaling that he is also doing metaphysics when he writes this work called On First Philosophy. The surviving part of On First Philosophy does basically two things. First, he proves that the world is not eternal. And second, he proves that God is what he calls a true one. So actually what he does is he first proves the existence of such a true one. And then he has this long discussion about what we can and cannot say about this true one. And then at the end of the surviving part with this kind of dramatic flourish, he sort of reveals that this true one that he's been talking about is the God of the Quran, and you get this series of Quranic epithets, the the redeemer, the creator, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, ascribed to this thing, the true one. So I think you're right that the vision of the true one we're being presented with here is not very anthropomorphic. So it's not like, as it were, you know, the guy in heaven with the white beard kind of idea of God. It's not the Sistine Chapel ceiling. It's a very abstract notion of God, but on the other hand, Okindi, I think, is pushing away from abstract Greek ideas about a first principle towards a more Quranic idea in the following sense. If you think about what's happened in the Greek tradition, the two main options for him to think about God, because he doesn't know Plato very well, would probably be the God in Aristotle's metaphysics and Plotinus's God. So what do Aristotle and Plotinus think? Well, Aristotle thinks that God is the first cause of motion and that God is a pure intellect and somehow causes the entire universe to move by thinking about himself. That's obviously complicated, but you can have another podcast about that someday. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Then Plotinus thinks that that's true, that there is this God who is an intellect but that that is not the first principle. So he thinks of that as the second principle and denies that it is fundamental. And for him, the reason why Aristotle's God can't be fundamental is that such a God would still be in some sense multiple. So for example, this God would be thinking about himself. And so he'd be both the subject of thought and the object of thought. So he'd be in a sense two. Whereas Plotinus wants to insist that the really fundamental thing at the top of the entire causal chain, as it were, should be completely and utterly one. Again, we could maybe talk about whether that's a reasonable assumption, but his basic idea here is just that if we kind of look around, in general, we see that more unified things are causes for less unified things. For example, the soul is more unified than the body and is causally prior to the body. Okay, so Akindi really likes that idea And the reason he really likes it is pretty obvious. What's the most central theological doctrine of Islam? Well, in Arabic, it's called tawhid, which means unity or oneness. So a very central tenet of Islam is that there is only one God, right? It's a rejection of polytheism. So, for example, there are these stories about Muhammad going into the temple and clearing out the idols because he wants to insist on the one god of Islam, as opposed to the many gods of the pagan religious systems that uh, existed in the Arabian Peninsula in his time. So Kindi, like some contemporary Muslim theologians, kind of radicalizes this by saying, well, if what we're looking for is one god, then we're looking for a god that is identical with unity itself, which is nothing but oneness. And then he thinks he can prove the existence of this god by giving this very complicated proof in on first philosophy, where he shows that all other things that exist need to receive their unity from a source of unity which is fundamentally and purely one, sort of the way that in Plato all horses, let's say, receive their hoarseness from the form of horse. So this is a little bit inadequate, but you can maybe think about Okindi's God as being like a Platonic form of unity, in the sense that he's one, he's the source of unity for other things, and he is in no respect multiple. That's really important for Okindi.
0: Okay, so we're going to call God the true one in order to emphasize that he's or it is completely unified. There's no way of even sort of breaking it up into pieces, even by imagining different parts of it. I think a common picture that we have in our heads now of like what an explanatory principle looks like is, you know, we go out into the world and we observe some phenomena and we see, oh, look, you know, I throw this billiard ball against that billiard ball and it does that. And then presto, we discover the laws of classical mechanics and that explains to us, oh, you know, this is why whenever I throw the billiard ball and hits this billiard ball that, you know, goes that way rather than this way, I can bring that under the heading of this general law that will predict whenever I do this, such and such will happen. Is that the kind of picture of um, explaining things that is relevant here or is does the one explain things in a different sense?
1: right so I think that what Alkindi would say is that you need to think about causation in two different ways at the same time because causation happens at two different levels and this again is something he's really getting from neoplatonism so if you're a neoplatonist or if you're Alkindi you certainly are not going to deny that physical things causally interact with each other. And in fact, Okindi is a big fan of Aristotelian physics, so he's very happy to talk about the way things interact in terms of, say, being hotter and colder. So he has this four-element theory, like Aristotle. He thinks that the physical properties of something are going to be a function of these more basic elemental properties. And so he'll say, for example, that fire goes up because it's light, Right, He doesn't say that God makes fire go up. So there's a level of causal explanation, which is properly physical. So this is the level that you get access to by doing natural philosophy. And you do that basically by going and often reading Aristotle's physics and other works on natural philosophy, like On the Heavens. And Akindi's is perfectly happy with that. Now, a Platonist will then want to say, oh, but, If we're going to explain why hot things are hot, then we're going to need to appeal to a form of heat, right? the form of hot itself. And they have various arguments for that. Interesting thing about Okindi is he doesn't seem to feel the need to do that. So in general, he seems quite happy with Aristotelian physics, and he would use Aristotelian physics to explain the kind of case you just mentioned. So billiard balls hitting each other, he would say, well, they're dense. So when they move towards each other, they bounce off each other or something like that. Of course, he doesn't have classical mechanics because classical mechanics is not that classical. <laughs> and then he, it seems like he wants to make an exception in the case of the true one. And so an obvious question is, well, is he just cheating here? So in general, he doesn't invoke platonic forms, but then because he needs to make room for God, in his metaphysics, he says, "Well, in this case, we are going to have a, a paradigmatic form." I think not. So I think he does have a good reason, and the reason is that he'll say, "Well, if something doesn't have unity, then it cannot exist at all." So for him, for fire to be fire, is to have unity of a certain kind, namely, for it to be made into the thing that it is by a single essence. Right. So you have. Fire is a very basic thing for Okindi, so it would just be the form of fire that's been predicated of some matter, and the form there is the principle of unity in it. Fire isn't purely unified, because it's a body, so it has parts, for example. And the same thing will go for any physical object. So for example, you, Matt, are a human. You're unified by the form of man in you, which is your soul, and you have a body. Your soul has multiplicity, actually, Be- Kindi thinks, for example, because it experiences time. So it's sort of spread out over one moment to the next. But your body, it even more obviously, has multiplicity, right? Because your leg is different from your arm, right? So you have parts. But nonetheless, you have a unity which makes you what you are. And so unity for Okindi is this kind of baseline that needs to be there in order for physical explanation even to start becoming relevant. Because physical explanation only happens once you have physical substances that can interact with each other. And without unity, you don't get any physical substances. So his argument is going to be that unless we can explain where unity in general comes from, then we won't be able to have a physical universe this actually is quite similar to some later arguments you get for example in avicenna who's probably the greatest islamic philosopher you get a very similar idea that god is the source of existence for everything which would maybe be for us a more obvious way to think about it so if you think that god creates everything then you'll also probably be inclined to agree that something like the billiard ball example, will only be relevant in the context where God has created some things that exist, namely in this case billiard balls. Okindi has the same basic idea, he's working with the concept of unity instead of existence, but I think that the upshot is pretty similar in that for him unity is a precondition of existence, so nothing can exist without being the unity that it is, a man or a hunk of fire or whatever it is.
0: So Al Alkilni was really out to explain not so much why the stuff we observe happens, but rather why it's there in the first place and why everything is the sort of thing that it is, and you know something much more fundamental.
1: Well, he was yeah. out to explain both, actually, because he also wrote a series of works on natural philosophy. So he actually has lots to say about the four elements, about the heavens, and so on. And in fact, he has a, an interesting story here, which is maybe worth... in, which is that although God is the cause of unity and hence existence for everything, God doesn't directly kind of get his hands dirty and bring it about, for example, that you're here doing a podcast with me today. He doesn't seem to think that. He thinks Mm -hmm. of God as what he calls a remote cause. Mm -hmm. And the proximate or near cause of things that are happening down here in our world for Akindi is the heavens. So he thinks that God is using heavenly motion to bring about the events that are happening here where humans live. So his cosmology, his cosmological picture is the same as you find in most antique philosophy, namely that there are these perfectly spherical globes rotating around the sublunary world where we live, which is where the earth is, right? And these spheres carry with them the visible planets which are sort of like dots in these transparent glass spheres. And so the idea is that somehow through all of these spheres moving around the world that's made of air, earth, fire, and water, which is where we live, the elements are maybe stirred up or somehow manipulated in order to produce the physical substances that we see around us and also the events that we see around us. And that's important for Okindi because one of his other interests is astrology. So he thinks that by observing and predicting where the planets will be, you'll be able to predict what will actually happen down in the sublunary world. So he has this very elaborate explanation of why physical things happen. And it's a properly physical explanation, although it's a bit weird, right? Because it involves astrology and things like that. Mm -hmm. But that still means that he's distinguishing between what God does, namely serve as the ultimate source of unity and hence existence for all things, and what physical causes do, namely manipulate other physical things. Mm
0: So another thing that Al-Kindi was most known for was arguing that the world was not eternal, as Aristotle had argued, but that there was actually a moment at which it was created. So why did Al-Kindi think that was the case?
1: Right, so the first thing to say here is that by the world, we mean everything other than God. So And what that means for Al-Kindi is apparently the physical universe. It's actually a little bit tricky because... He definitely thinks that there are some immaterial things, at least our souls are immaterial. So that's a little bit of a problem, but let's just leave that aside and just think about God and the physical universe. And let's call the physical universe the world for the sake of uh, clarity of exposition. So there's two possible alternatives, right? Either the world has always been here or the world has only been here for a finite amount of time. And Okindi would have known very well that the answer Aristotle gives to that alternative is that the world has always been here. So Aristotle argues explicitly in both the physics and on the heavens, and he presupposes it in the metaphysics as well, that the world cannot have come into existence with a first moment in time that's impossible for various reasons. One reason that he gives is that if there were a first event, like a first motion, then there would need to be a previous motion in order to make that motion happen, and so you'd have a regress back into the past. So al actually has a very good reason to embrace the eternity of the world, which is that his favorite philosopher embraced the eternity of the world. So it's quite striking that al unlike most other Islamic philosophers, especially the ones who explicitly put themselves in the Aristotelian tradition, He denies the eternity of the world, whereas people like Al-Farabi, Avicenna, and Averroes accept the eternity of the world. So why does he do this? Well, there's a kind of a historical story you can tell, which is that he was acquainted with the arguments against Aristotle of a Christian late ancient philosopher named John Philoponus. And some of the arguments that he gives just reproduce arguments that Philoponus had given. But that still doesn't really tell you why, right? I mean, that just gives you a story about where he pulls the arguments from. So I think that the reason he wants to prove that the world is not eternal is because he thinks that everything must be either eternal or created, and that those two things are absolutely opposed. So whereas Avicenna, who comes along a bit later, thinks that you can conceive of God creating the universe in the sense that it's causally dependent on God, but permanently so. Okindi thinks that if the world is eternal, that means it wasn't caused by God. So that for him is the real crucial issue. And then he gives this argument for why the world can't be eternal. And the argument is not a very good one. Or not so much because it doesn't work as because it doesn't give him what he needs. So let me explain. What he does is he says, well, every body needs to be finite. It might be potentially infinite, but it cannot be actually infinite. So if you imagine an infinite body, he thinks that there are various puzzles and paradoxes that would arise. The best one is the following thought experiment, which listeners can go home and think about whether this works. So here's the thought experiment. Imagine an infinitely large body, like, for example, a bowl with an infinite number of marbles in it. So it's got an infinite number of marbles in it when we start, let's take some out. So let's take out five marbles. And then we ask, well, how many marbles are in the bowl? Is it still an infinite number? Well, if it is, then we've subtracted something without changing the number or the quantity, and that's very weird. But if it's a finite amount left in the bowl, then when we put the five marbles back in, we'll be adding a finite number to another finite number, namely five, and so we should get a finite number. And so just by taking five marbles out and putting them back in, we've changed what's supposedly infinite into something finite, and that's even weirder. And so infinite bodies are impossible. So it's a great sort of fallacious argument. It's fun (laughs) to think about what the problem is. So the reason why that doesn't give him what he wants, I think, is because really all he's shown there is that there's no such thing as an actually infinite body. And Aristotle agrees with that. The problem is that then Kindi goes on to say, well, anything predicated of an of a finite body must also be finite. Time is predicated of the body. So if the body is finite, then time must be finite. So the universe is not eternal. It doesn't seem to follow, right? And in particular, what Aristotle would say is that although there are paradoxes that result, if you suppose that the world is infinitely large, there are no paradoxes that result from saying that the world has been here for an infinite period of time. Why? Well, because the world's not there for an infinite period of time all at once. And that's when you get the paradoxes, is when you have an actually present infinity, where the infinity is all present at the same time. But of course, the infinity of time can't be present at the same time, so there's no difficulty. Okindy does, however, give one other argument, which is drawn from Philoponus, which I think is better. And again, maybe we can leave it to the listeners to decide whether they think this argument works. But it's a lot more convincing than the thing about the marbles. So here's the argument. If the world is eternal, then there must be a number of, let's say, minutes that the world has already existed. How large is that number? And the answer clearly is infinite, Right because that's, that's the whole claim, that the world's eternal. And then he wants to say that that is an actual infinity, the number of minutes that has already elapsed. So one way that he puts that thought is that an infinity cannot be traversed. You, so you can't start at one side of an infinity and get to the other side. And that's what you'd have to do in order to get to the present moment through an infinity of past time, right? But what that just means is that the number of moments or minutes that have already happened can never reach an infinite amount. It has to always be finite. And that shows that the world has only been here for a finite amount of time, he
0: thinks. So a lot of these arguments that we've been discussing are pretty abstract and um, on the face of it seem perhaps somewhat removed from the uh, questions we worry about in our everyday lives. Why do you think that it's important for us to uh, go back to El Kindi? Are there important lessons that we can draw from the various arguments we've been discussing that can help us either philosophically or in some other way today?
1: Well, I think the most important thing about al is clearly his role in the history of philosophy, right? So he's the first Islamic philosopher and anyone who cares about the relationship between Western philosophy and the West generally and Islamic culture should care about al-Kindi for that reason. I and mean, in fact, it's probably wrong to think about it as the West versus Islam, right? Because, I mean, for one thing, the Islamic world went as far as modern day Spain. That's pretty far west. (laughs) Um, And for another thing, everything we've been talking about with al-Kindi shows that it's not like Indian or Chinese philosophy, which at least arguably arose in this very kind of remote way and then interacted only very occasionally, with the philosophy that stems from Greece. Rather, Akindi clearly is, as it were, just the next thing that happens in the story of the transmission of Greek philosophy, and in that sense is no less a part of the so-called Western philosophical tradition than, say, what's happening in medieval Europe in Latin at the same time. So he's certainly very historically important, but of course, I guess probably people who are listening this far into the episode probably are not people who don't care about history of philosophy at all, but you could certainly imagine people who just think, well, what's the point of studying philosophy that happened in the ninth century? And they might concede that it's worth studying, say, Plato and Aristotle just because they're famous or because we need to know what we're getting beyond or how much progress we've made or whatever, but sometimes it's said, you know, they don't study the history of physics in when they're doing physics degrees, so why should we study the history of philosophy when we're doing philosophy degrees? And obviously that's a very big question, but I think it does arise with special force with someone like Alkindi, A, because he's fairly obscure. B, because the philosophical project is motivated by the desire to prove a lot of things that we might not even accept. So for example, we might not believe in God. We almost certainly don't believe in the immortal soul that's immaterial and so on. And the third reason is that he's not actually the most impressive philosopher, right? I mean, he, he makes mistakes pretty clearly. His knowledge of his sources is pretty patchy. Sometimes it can be quite hard to bring together things he's said and show that he's being consistent. And that's probably not because he's changed his mind. It's probably because he hasn't fully thought through all the things he's drawing from the Greek tradition. And in that respect, I would contrast him to someone like Avicenna. So Avicenna, who died in 1037, and is the most important, probably the most important medieval philosopher, full stop, but certainly the most important Islamic philosopher, Avicenna is a towering intellect. And if you think Avicenna has made a mistake, it's because you haven't understood what's going on, probably. I mean, he's really amazing as a philosopher and could hold his own with any philosopher who's ever lived. I don't think we can say that about Akindi. So this question, why should we do history of philosophy, I think arises with special force here because it's really the question why should we do history of philosophy when we're looking at a philosopher who's not even that brilliant a philosopher so i've said as i've said in his case there are these historical reasons you can give you can also think that some of the arguments that he gives are kind of interesting puzzles to think about and even diagnosing the mistakes might be kind of interesting and instructive so for example these issues about infinity that we were just discussing are fun to think about but I actually think that the most philosophically interesting thing about kindy is none of those things. It's something that's closer to the historical issue, but it is, I think, a philosophical and not a historical issue, which is this. What au kindy was doing, to say that it was unusual up to that point in the history of philosophy would be an understatement. It's really the first time it's ever happened that a philosopher is interacting so carefully with another philosophical tradition which is in another language that he can't read. Obviously, he has colleagues who can read it, namely these translators. But the only people in the Greek-Latin tradition that are comparable, really, are Cicero and Boethius, both of whom could read Greek themselves and translate it from Greek into Latin. The same is true with another obscure philosopher who lived around the same time as Elkindi and worked in France, John Scotus Ereugena, who translated from Greek into Latin. So what you have with Akindi, in a way, I mean, the limitations that he's got on his project are precisely what make him so interesting, because you're watching someone try to deal with an extremely foreign body of philosophical ideas in a language he doesn't know, and watching him try to negotiate between that and also bring in the concerns of Islamic culture, I think itself is sort of teasing out a part how that works is itself a kind of philosophical Activity, So we're not just sort of looking at his arguments and thinking, oh, well, is that valid? Is that not valid? The more interesting thing is, well, how did he get there? And how are these terms and concepts changing as they move from Greek into Arabic? What difference does it make that we're using Arabic terms, Arabic language rather than Greek language, and it raises lots of philosophical issues about the possibility of translating philosophy from one language into a very different language, right, because this isn't even Indo-European, it's Semitic, and so on and so forth. So I think, in a way, the project itself is so philosophically interesting that that is, for me, the most powerful philosophical reason to look at it, just regardless of its historical importance.
0: Peter Adamson, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: One last thing I'll mention before we go is that Peter Adamson is the creator and host of one of my very favorite podcasts, the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, which you should go listen to the moment you're finished listening to this, (laughs) and can be accessed at www.historyofphilosophy.net. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at Lucian. That's l-u-c-i-a-n dot slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion.